blessed by our study tonight. And I just pray, Father, as we look at these things, as we study these things, that we would truly have a mind to do these things. So once again, we pray that you would bless us as we come together under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn to greet your neighbors? Hi, Linda. Way out there. Hi, Alfred. Hi, Tina. Hey, Steve. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Ecclesi- yeah, let's not. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll be starting at verse 1. <clears throat> The preacher has been going around to different segments of life, and now he's landed in this one that we should all be able to relate to. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better to not vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ was addressing seven churches that were there, but there are also seven aspects of a church or seven aspects of church history, but regardless, it fits to all three situations. He told the church at Laodicea, because they were lukewarm, that he will vomit them out of his mouth. Those who come before the Lord and bring everything but their heart, the Lord has no, no time for, for such a person, no patience for them. Now, we see the mindset that exists here in these first verses, and we really need to not just look at those people back then, but we need to really look at ourselves today. So how would you feel? How would you feel about somebody who says they're going to do something and never follows through? How would you feel if that person made a habit of it, or at least did it many times? Disingenuine with their commitments, well, you probably wouldn't have a lot of patience with such a person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And again, that's what, as servants of the Lord... It's what the Lord desires of us. Jesus was faithful even to the point of death, even death upon the cross. How much more so should we be faithful in, well, as we'll look at the vows, and I'll get into that later, but the vows that we make, the worship that we give, the fellowship that we have with one another and with the Lord. What God deems important, we should give top priority to in our lives, and we see an importance that has been lent 
to the scriptures, the verses that we'll be looking at today. So we must then consider, how many unfaithful promises have we made to God? Now, I want you to personally consider it. I do. I need to as well. How many times have you said to yourself, Lord, I'll do this and this. Or Lord, every day I'll do this. Or every Sunday I'll, I'll do this. And first thing when I get out of bed, I'll do this. How many times have we made a vow before the Lord that, Lord, I know I need to pray more. And, and we, we, we make that commitment to God to lift up not only our lives, but the lives of others in prayer. Or maybe fast. Lord, your word says that it's expected of a born-again believer that he would have a life that includes fasting. And this year, I'm going to make some days, I'm going to make some time to fast. Or how about getting into God's word? Lord, I'm going to make the commitment to read through the entire Bible in a year. Or, Lord, I need to be in your word a little bit more. I'm going to make the effort. I'm going to make a vow to you that this year I'm going to attend more services. And then we don't follow through. Well, there is to be a conviction here. A conviction here because, again, that's just the sacrifice of a fool. Then we must consider how many unfulfilled promises that God has made to us. Do you know of any? Even one unfulfilled promise that God has made to us, that could be detrimental for eternity. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As God is faithful, how much more so should I be faithful? Now, a, a big problem that I see in, in these vows in this situation, coming before the Lord and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, so many times, you know, Lord, I'm going to get into your word. I'm going to read through the Bible, you know, four times in a year. You know, we, we make these, the, the, these bigger promises that we could possibly fulfill. I remember, I'm going to give my kids two devotions a day. Well, that was a problem because I usually wasn't up when they left for school. And a lot of times they were in bed when I was working a, a regular job. And so we've got, to, we've got to fit these things in how they work for us. As a man, as a husband, I need to be in the word of God with my wife. And so I can make the vow every single day, which would be a good vow to make if you're able to keep it. But start small. I'm going to get into the Word of God at least once a week with my wife. Maybe one of those times when just the two of you are home, or maybe the whole family, but you know you're going to be home, let's just say, on a Friday night. Most Friday nights, if we're home, we're, doing, we're going to get into God's Word to get with her and to make the covenant between one another that we're going to keep each other accountable in this, We'll go through a book of the Bible or get into a devotional or whatever it might be and start small and have it work up to where you really believe that God would have you in the Word with your spouse. Or again, your personal time. Instead of reading through the Bible twice in, or four times in a year, I'm just going to go through the one-year Bible. The one-year Bible, it, it takes me to read my daily reading in the one-year Bible. It takes about 10 minutes, 15 at the most. And just to get into God's word every single day. That's a commitment that I made back in November 3rd of 2001. And I have done it every year since. When I fall behind, I'll make up as I can. But eventually, every year, I get through the whole Bible. I think Bill and I were just talking about it on Thursday. And every year, there's something new. There's something more. And God always has something. That's why God's word is living and powerful. Because it's always going to meet us where we are at and the situations and circumstances. And it's the value of God's word. It's the value of getting into God's word. As far as fasting, 
Well, that's something I've been praying about. I need to get into more fasting this year. I've kind of let that part of my spiritual life fall from where it used to be. When my kids were young, when they were of elementary school age through to high school, my wife we and I, we used to fast every single Wednesday. And that was something that God honored. We didn't, it didn't produce perfect kids, but we're imperfect people. But nonetheless, it was something as we did that God blessed. And as far as attending church, I kind of have to do that because it's like my job. But I can just show up. I can kind of mail it in. You know, it, it'd be real easy to do. I can just show up, give an old Bible study, and go on from there. No, attending church means to attend with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind. To truly, when you're there, to truly be there and to be all in. And so in Ecclesiastes, we saw probably King Solomon more than likely, but he refers to himself as the preacher. He's been sitting in his ivory tower and he's been looking across the land and seeing, well, that was, was from the beginning is now today. And he's seen in reality, nothing ever really changes. But now he has left his ivory tower and it seems like he's gone venturing into society. And he's looking at the things that go on in his community. And he's visited the courtroom and he's seen the injustice that is there. He's gone to the marketplace and see how people go about their days, how the workman goes about his day. He visited the palace and he saw the king who kind of got comfortable in the situation and was no longer open to correction and how the new person, the young man, was so excited about the job and open to learning and to moving forward, but then he fell into the, 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 the same routine as the older king did as well. And then in his quest for meaning in life now in chapter 5, he considers the place that should hold all of the answers to man's questions pertaining to life. It's the place of worship. And really, the place of worship is where all these other places spring forward from. As goes man's relationship with God, so will all the other areas of man's life, all the other areas of society. And so, in his quest to see the things that are going on across the board in society, now, from our perspective, he probably went into the temple, calls it the house of God back then, but he's looking at, or at least we'll look, at the church. What he observes is, is a lack of integrity when it comes to the worship of God. He's seeing how the average person is worshiping the Lord, and he's looking at, this just isn't right. There, there, there's no heart and soul that is invested in the worship of God. There's no recognition of God Almighty, the deity of God, and the holiness of God, and the might of God that would produce, and that's how he finishes this first paragraph, there's no fear of God amongst the people. And again, if there's a fear of God, if there's a recognition of the absolute holiness of God amongst the congregation, it doesn't matter who's up here leading worship. It doesn't matter what songs are being sung. It's just the knowledge that I'm coming before a holy God. And so do you prepare your heart to receive from God before you come to church? Worship is not the preparation for the church service of this evening or this morning or, or any other time. It's when I know that I'm going to the house of God. Now, God's omnipresent. God's with you no matter where you are. You're not really going to meet God, but as, as we come to church, we come to a higher awareness of the presence of God in our life. 
Again, we know that we're going to be worshiping the Lord. We're going to be getting into his word. Again, a higher awareness of the presence of God. We're going to be fellowshipping with fellow born-again believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, a higher awareness of the presence of God. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask, and I pray that most of us do, that God just meet me there in the situations and circumstances of my life. And there's an opportunity that God will speak to me, and that all comes from a higher awareness of the presence of God. That regardless of where we are at in the Bible, that is the mindset that this is God's word breathed from his mouth into my ears and through into my soul. To understand the potential that is able to come about as we gather together and we sit under God's word. And again, we can take this thing for routine. We can just, just kind of throw this as, you know, Sunday night for an hour. But again, there's always the potential that God is going to minister to my life in a very, I shouldn't say the potential, God is going to minister to your life in a very real way. Are you prepared to receive of it? And it's as if the church is filled and the preacher is sitting here and kind of looking at the people and seeing, you know what, there's no passion for what is being offered here. There's no passion for, not by the church, but what God is offering the people through his word and again, through this time of, of worship. So what he sees here is, is a lack of integrity when it comes to the worship of God. We've seen where integrity was lacking in every other aspect of society, and I really believe what we see across the landscape of our society today, there's no fear of God across the land. Somewhere along the line, the church had let the people down and kind of fell apart, and people had ventured off from a relationship with God, and we live in a society that everybody does what is right in their own sight. And what we're seeing in the news today, I don't care if Donald Trump, regardless of your view of Donald Trump, the mindset of a section of our society is, I don't care if he was rightly elected, this is what I want. And if they're not going to get what they want, then they're going to do what we see that they're doing. And this could happen from the left, and it could happen from the right. So, you know, this, this, is, this is society, the society that we, we live in. I'm getting tired of people referring to the people that they disagree with as snowflakes. Why are we insulting the people that we should be ministering to? Why are we talking down the people that we should be sharing God's word with? And again, we have to understand because of a fear of God, because even those people that are, are whining and complaining or rioting and, and, and thrashing, whatever they're doing, God loves them and wants to see them into a right relationship with them. And, and again, whether right or, or, or left, these people are deceived, and there's plenty of people that agree politically how we agree, but they're still far from Christ. And so what i got to see is this lack of integrity that has sprung up in our society. It starts with the relationship with God. Again, Nietzsche said, God is dead. He was a philosopher around the 1100s, I believe, and he believed that he was able to prove through his intellect that God doesn't exist. But again, this is a man who just before he died said, I knelt at the grave of God and I cried. Because he realized that it was, he didn't believe in God, but he realized that it was through a belief in God that truly a society is held together and people are able to work together in unity because of that. And when that is taken out of the society, the society will crumble. And so worship has become routine and sincere and even hypocritical. And I believed in the church that has happened a long time ago that people who are coming up through the church sees these things and wants no part of it. Dad, why do we go to church? 
Well, dad's fallen into routine a long time ago. Well, we go to church because, because it's Sunday. That's not a good enough answer. Dad, how come during the, the time of worship that we get there late and you never really sing? Well, it's not important because we're waiting for the pastor to, to, to come out. And then, Dad, you know, when the pastor does come out and all those things he says, how come you never do them? Well, you don't worry about it. You don't do what I do. You do what I say. And, and, and again, that's not going to fly. You're not going to follow somebody who is like that. We don't do phony. As human beings, we don't do phony very well. We recognize a phony for what it is and want no part of it. But, again, we see the, the church. I shouldn't say the church, but what claims to be the church has produced the hypocrite and those who play the hypocrite not only are fooling themselves, but they are not fooling anybody else. So if I rob God, if I lie to God, if I put on a show for God, then I'm going to do the same thing for my fellow man. The only way I can have a love for my fellow man is to first love God. As I first love God, then God is going to enable me to minister to my brother or my sister. And it's only then that we're going to have a society that is honorable in the sight of God. That's why, once again, Jesus told that church at Laodicea, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit. I want nothing to do with you. And God forbid that we would be a church that are filled with people who are lukewarm. There's two traps that we can fall into when we seek the Lord. The first is making, it's the danger of making God unapproachable. The Jews did that. They, they had the fat Sadducees and the Pharisees. And if you really want to seek God, you've got to come through us. The Sadducees had control of the temple. And because of that, if you wanted to offer a sacrifice, you would take your money and you would have to go buy their sacrifice, their, their lamb or their dove, because theirs were the approved sacrifice. But they couldn't just take your money. First, you would have to go and exchange the money and get the temple money which you were being charged there, then you were being overcharged to get the sacrifice, and so finally you would be able to make your sacrifice, but then your heart more than likely would not be in it. Later on, it was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is the doctrine that puts somebody between God and man. If you want a relationship with God, you've got to come. You got to sit under Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike is the only way that you're going to get to Jesus Christ. If you ever hear me say that, leave go somewhere else because you don't need another person and that's what paul was saying some people say i'm of apollo some people say i'm of peter some people say i'm of paul some people say i'm just you know it's not about the being of anybody and i've heard that people i had one guy in a council this was years ago i was at another church nobody that's ever been here i had a guy come in he was counseling he was having issues well he was actually hitting his wife and so we're in there, and you know, I'm kind of coming down on him. No man has a right to do that. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about. I have counseled with Raul Reese. I have and he's going through this list like, he's, like these are a badge of honor to him. And it's like, well, what's your excuse then? And we can so use these names and drop these spiritual names that have no meaning in the sight of God. And so as far as making God unapproachable, the Jews did it the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and even traditional religion that says our denomination is the right way to go. Calvary chapels teach verse by verse, but not all of them do, and there very well could be some bad Calvary chapels. Just because it says Calvary chapel in the front of the building doesn't mean that they're a church that honors God. We can have that impression that God is unobtainable, unapproachable, and unpardonable, and we can even think that God is mad and 
it takes somebody to come in between in order to appease him and rightly represent us. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly, based upon the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Now keep in mind what the Old Testament mindset was. If I go in to meet God, I'm a dead man. You know, I can't just walk into the Holy of Holies. And so, yeah, I did need a priest to represent me before God, but the problem was what happens when the priesthood becomes defiled? But now we've got that picture, Jesus Christ upon the cross, and as he dies, you have that, that, that big curtain that supposedly was 40 feet high, 20 feet wide, and 6 inches thick. And that curtain is torn, and it's torn like you would tear something from top to bottom as if God went and grabbed it and tore it. And what he's doing is he's opening through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy of Holies, to all humanity. I can now come into the presence of God through God's word or in a spirit of prayer, but that I would be able to enter in so that I can have this personal relationship with the Lord. So when the writer of Hebrews is saying these things, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You're not coming to the throne of judgment. You don't go boldly to the throne of judgment. You don't go boldly to the throne of the unknown. But we know the love of God that that has been lavished upon us and the grace of God that has been given to us. So now we can come to that place of God. The throne of God is the place of God where God renders decisions for our lives. It's where he controls all of creation. And we are able to come before that holy God. The second danger is making him something less than he really is. It's the same danger that we have in all of our relationships, and we can so easily take God for granted. How many times have you heard God referred to as the big guy in the sky, the man upstairs, the higher power? Usually it's by somebody, obviously it's by somebody who doesn't really know or understand the magnitude of the glory of God. And and this particular person does damage to his perception of God by bringing God down to mankind rather than seeking him out as he's seated upon his throne. This is one of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote against in the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, and he says, because although they knew God, although they knew God existed, they did not glorify him as God. They took him for granted. It says, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Do you see the slippery slope there? First it starts, although they knew God, they know God exists, but that's not good enough. They did not glorify him as God. They didn't give God the glory. They didn't present their bodies as that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. They weren't thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, the seed of their emotions and their actions. And their foolish hearts were darkened. When you see something darkened or going into darkness, we've seen this on Thursday night, the picture is of a godless existence. Professing to be wise, they thought they knew, but in actuality, they became fools. Apathy towards God is always spiritually fatal. Apathy towards God is always spiritually fatal. We're talking about God. We're talking about the one who created us. We're talking about the one who desired to have a relationship with us to such a degree that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
We're talking about the God that went to the cross. And again, the focal point of Jesus going to the cross is not just his death, but it's first how he had taken sin upon himself. God Almighty, in all of his purity and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness, he defiled himself on purpose to take our sin upon him. And, and, and it was such a defilement, and it was such, a, such an overwhelming, that's what killed him. He died. Sin brings forth death. But he paid the price for all of our sin that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because of that, we submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to God in a spirit of adoration, understanding the magnitude of what he has done and the magnitude of, of who we are. And I'm speaking of that in the bad terms as sinners that we are. That God thought enough of us, and yet while we were still sinners... He died for us, and that should cause that adoration, that spirit of worship to well up inside of us. And so what the preacher is observing is a people who forgot that they were serving God Almighty. Once again, verse 1, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. And so again, the preacher was amazed at the lax worship of God. These people either did not know or forgot of the glory of God. And now this was before the book of Malachi, but we see that this still existed in that day, this laxical spirit of worship. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, it says, A son honors his father and his servant his master. If then I am the father, this is God speaking through the prophet, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, Yet you say, they give a defense, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible or, or useless. And when you offer a blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now, Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and so no longer do we offer animals on the altar as they did back then. But the idea was they were to be a perfect animal. Now, a perfect animal, especially in the farming community of the time, that would be something very valuable. He would reproduce, he or she would reproduce well. They would give good milk, they would give good meat, they would you know, grow wool if a healthy animal would produce. Now, if I had a scrawny animal... If I had an animal that was disabled, something to be cast off, that's not nearly as valuable. So the problem was, is the priest was there for the sacrifice, and, well, because the priests were lackadaisical in their worship, it has filtered through to the people, and they're thinking, okay, it's time to go make a sacrifice. Am I going to give my valuable lamb, or am I going to give the scrawny lamb? Well, I'll see which one the priest will accept. And so they would give the priest the scrawny lamb, and the priest would accept it, and they'd go away happy thinking that they did service to God. And so I have to be of that mindset. What is it that we offer to God? I mean, as far as making an offering such as that, again, it's not for sins because Jesus Christ washed away our sins, but it's because we want to be honorable to the Lord. Now, he uses this example. Would you offer this to your government? So when it comes tax time, would you offer the scrawny one to the government? No, you wouldn't even offer it to him because you know he'd kind of laugh in your face. That would be unacceptable to the government. There's instant reaction there. And so, if it's tax time versus tithe time, 
how do I give in relationship to what I give to the government? Am I giving God what I really believe that God has laid upon my heart to give him? Because, you know, when the government asks for a certain amount, he's not going to take any less. Next time you owe, let's just say a round number, let's say you owe the IRS $1,000, just send him $100 and call it good. See what he says. You'll probably be getting a letter, and the letter will have some add-ons on it. They have a little thing called interest, and there's penalties, and they have quite a few add-ons on it. And then all of a sudden, your 1000 becomes $2,500 or whatever. So you're not going to even do that because there's instant repercussions for that. And again, how about our spirit of heart to worship the Lord through our tithes and offerings? Or, I got my boss. He's asking me that I work 40 hours a week. I'll give him 20 hours a week. Would that be acceptable? No, you'd have a pink slip in your box. How about service to God? God has called us to be servants. Now, again, I'm not going to have instant repercussions because I don't serve the Lord. But my boss, I more than likely get fired on the spot. And so, again, you see the balance here. And, and what God is doing is he's challenging them as far as where is your love? Where is your service? Where is your honor to me? When you worship, however it is worship, we worship God in so many ways. Are you aware of his presence when you're worshiping the Lord? Not just, again, the singing of the songs, but the understanding that I'm coming before a holy God, singing his songs. Is you writing out a tithe check? Is that a, a, an act of routine? That's not acceptable to God. It doesn't matter the amount that's on there. But when we're writing out a tithe check, it's got to be with the spirit of worshiping God or swiping a card or putting cat, whatever it might be. But just what, it's what is what you know to be acceptable worship to the Lord. Because, again, it's not about giving God money. He's already got all the money. It's about giving back to God what he has first given to me and, and making it in your life an act of worship. That's why if you're given hardly anything and it's just routine, that's not a good thing. If you give a whole lot, but if it's just routine, that's not a good thing. We have to have that spirit of worship in what we give. We have to have that spirit of worship as we serve. If you don't have that, your service is going to become a frustration. You can be in there with children and thinking, yeah, they're in there and I can hear them singing and they're there listening to the study and all that, and I'm stuck with their stinking kids. If you have that attitude, that's not really an attitude of service to the Lord. That's an attitude of endurance to get brownie points or whatever it is that you may be looking for. But how do you feel when you come before the Lord? Do you feel his presence? Do you come before the Lord in a humble manner? When did you last have tears in your eyes before the Lord as you were worshiping him, as you were contemplating him, as you were in his word? Baptism, it's the neatest part of doing baptisms is people coming down those steps and into the pool and you just see on their face just this look of obedience and, and just this overwhelmingness. And I can't tell you how many people have tears in their eyes. And, you know, when you think about it, if you're of the world and you're just thinking, you know, what are they doing? They're getting people in the pool and they're dunking them underwater. What's the big deal? Well, these people are understanding the presence of God as they're obedient to what God has called them to do. And so when it says walk prudently, he's basically saying when you enter into the house of God, watch your step. Watch your step. Come before him humbly, come before him carefully, and come before him in sincerity. Come before him humbly, carefully, and in sincerity. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, 
and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Now, what is the sacrifice of fools? Sounds like it's something very important. This is what we'll spend the remainder of our study on. It's three things. It's those who are rash with their mouth, those who do not keep their vows to God, and he who has every excuse in the world when in actuality he has no excuse before a holy God. So again, those who are rash with their mouth, verses 2 and 3, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So, wisdom. Wisdom has two parts. Having a lot to say and not always saying it all. It's been my experience. People who talk too much, they think very little. And people who speak very little, they think a lot. And so I've got to be of the mindset of the things that I say. And when I open my mouth, what is it that I'm saying? Because Jesus said that it's when a person opens their mouth that they're defiled. You know, if they're truly defiled inside, it's what comes out of their mouth that reveals that, that they're defiled. And so I want to be honorable to the Lord. And so I've got to watch the things that I say. And so next time you're on Facebook, contemplate what you're posting. Next time you're sending an email, contemplate how it's coming across. That's the hard thing about emails. Sometimes you can't tell if the person's happy, sad, or mad, or however it is that they're coming across. I've got to contemplate how it is that I, I say things. I've been here at the pulpit and thinking of something, you know, in the midst of a teaching and going to say something, and I think to myself, don't say that. And then I hear it coming out of my mouth, and I think, that was a stupid thing to say. God even told me, don't say it, and I said it, and I've hurt feelings before, and that ought not to happen. That ought not to happen. We've got to be mindful of how it is that we come across and the words that we say, because words can so easily hurt. Words can so easily tear down. So be quiet, consume God's word, and speak when you are directed to. It says, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. So again, your mouth is an expression of your heart. It says, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. That means God is in the place of authority. He is the one of wisdom, and even Jesus Christ was referred to as the Word. I'm here on earth, so between me and God, who knows better? Who's the one who actually has the wisdom here? And before a holy God, what is it that I really have to say? The only thing I really have to say is what has been given to me. And so I've got to be of that mindset that this... The seed of what I say ought not to come from my own mind because so much evilness comes from there. It ought to come from God. So what I say needs to be seasoned with the word of God. I need to be of the mindset as I'm ministering to somebody, maybe somebody who disagrees with me. Maybe it's that liberal on Facebook or that conservative on Facebook. I've got to be careful about the things that I say. I was looking at a friend of mine, Holland Davis. He's the one who uh, wrote that song, Let It Rise. He's also a pastor down in San Clemente. And he made a statement on Facebook, and I'm not going to even try and quote it because I don't remember it, but it had to do with just the knowledge of the existence of God in a person's life. And you can't believe all the people that had something to say, and a lot of it was very foolish what they had to say. And I'm thinking, we've got to think of what we say, especially once you put it on paper, it ain't coming back. You can delete it, but at least the mindset, it's there. And so these words that I'm releasing out, i got to be careful of what I say before they do their damage. 
In James chapter 1, verse 19, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Proverbs 18, 13, He who answers a matter before he hears it and contemplates it, it is folly and shame to him. So the preacher, more than likely, is listening to the prayers in the temple and realize these people don't know who it is that they're talking to. I remember in my past religious experience, you would go to confession every so often. And when you would go to confession, after you told this priest your sins, then he would give you what was called penance. And he would basically say, okay, now go out there and say ten Our Fathers, three Hail Marys, and the act of contrition, and you're good for another couple of weeks. And so I'd go there, and Our Father, who art in heaven, Our Father, Our Father, Our Father. And you know, you're counting them all, and you're saying them as fast as you can so you can get out of there, and you go through your Hail Marys, your act of contrition. Would you like to have a conversation with somebody? You know, hi, Mike. 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 That would get irritating. And I often wonder, how much did I just kill God, irritate God with just my repetitive prayer? Matter of fact, we're told not to do that in Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, as the unbelievers do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And that's exactly what was going on there. But the thing about it was, I can mouth the words, but there was no heart in it. I wasn't praying to God, I was just saying words. I remember my son, he was having his first communion. We got saved just before that. We were still going to the Catholic Church for a period of time. And he had to learn for his first communion, he had to learn the prayers. And so I remember one night, my wife said, I came home from work, and I says, you need to go in there and teach Sean how to do the, say the Our Father. It's like, okay. So I go in there, Lord's Prayer, we would call it. So I sit down, Our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, Dad, Dad, slow down. It's like, all right, Our Father, uh, I couldn't say it. I, I couldn't say it slowly. I could blurt it out, but if I had to stop and think about the words, I couldn't do it. I had to cheat. I had to look at the book. And really, God was using that and ministering to me. Then really, what are you doing? What are you saying? Every day, every day of my life up during that time until adulthood, until I had children, as all I was a kid, we would pray for our dinner. Blessed are the Lord in these eyes, gifts we're about to receive from the body of Christ. Lord, amen. Let's eat. You know, we, and that's exactly how it was. Every once in a while, my mother would go, really? You know, but hey, we said our grace. Now it's time to eat. Do, do you really think there was one time that that prayer was acceptable to God? No, there was absolutely no heart in it, but that's how I was raised. John Bunyan said, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And that is so true. Verse 3, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Just as a hard worker will sleep soundly and have a dream, a fool is going to know, be known by his many words. Don't be impressed with people who pray long and pray eloquently. A lot of times they're praying to man and not praying to God. They're trying to display to others what a godly person they are rather than coming before the Lord. When you pray, just come before the Lord. And just come before the Lord in sincerity of heart. That's a prayer that is acceptable to God. And when you're done praying, leave it there. Just leave it there. That's all that God wants. God just wants to hear from you from once in a while. I mean, do you really think that you impress him with a long prayer? Do you think he's impressed with an eloquent, what we would consider an eloquent prayer? He's impressed with a heartfelt prayer. The second sacrifice of a fool is he who does not keep his vows to God. Verses 4 through 5. 
And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. The fool, not only has he a big mouth, but he does not do what he says. God did not command his people to make vows. Vows were to be voluntary. But once you made a vow, then it became compulsory. I mean, you, you had to keep that, that, that vow. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23, it says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and, you sh- and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, if you don't make a vow, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone for your lips, from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so if I make a vow at the beginning of the year that I'm going to read through the Bible this year, if that's an honest vow that promise that you have made to God, you better keep the vow. God's expecting you to keep the vow. Nowhere does it say read through the Bible every year. But if I make that vow to God, I need to do it. If you make a vow concerning various areas of worship, tithing, coming to, I'm going to show up on time to church, and I'm going to get involved in the worship and the singing to the Lord, then you need to do that. Or time. I'm going to give of my time to the Lord. I'm making a vow of my time. I'm going to serve in, in the kids. I'm going to teach kids. Then you need to, to do it. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and made a vow, you know, told me of a vow that they made to the Lord. You know, Pastor Mike, I'm going to get more involved in ministry. And some of them, I'm still waiting for them to get involved in ministry. You know, and so I've got to make sure that I don't present myself as a fool before the Lord. Now, again, a vow, a vow is any promise that we make to God. Psalm 76, 11 says, Make vow to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. And so the idea is we are to have a fear or a respect for God to such a degree when we make a promise to him that we follow through in our promises. One of the worst things, one of the hardest things that I ever did with my kids, it's one of those things if you had to do it all over again, made promises to them and didn't keep them all the time. You know, something at work came up or some situation or circumstance. And yeah, you know what? I'm not going to be able to take you, for instance, to the zoo. But you promised. I know, but I just can't do it. And that's the way it is. You know, I, I would like to go back and, 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 and fulfill those things to a greater degree than, than what I did. It's hard. There's no doubt about it. But I've got to be careful. We've got to be careful of the promises that we make, how much more so to the Lord. So what is the motivation of your vows? They are not to be there to impress because you cannot impress God. They're not there to bribe because you cannot bribe God. He owns it all. You've got to follow through in them because, again, the genuineness of your heart speaks volumes of who you are. And we see this concept presented in Genesis chapter 28 with, with Jacob. God gave him some pretty good, you know, in his dream, he gave him this vision of how God is opening up heaven to mankind. And then for some reason, Jacob, he tries to make this this bargain with God. Anyway, let me read it. It's in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 21. And Jacob made a vow. Now, he didn't have to do it, but he made this vow saying, if. Now, if you start your vow to God with the word if, you're in trouble right off the bat. Because really what you're not making a vow, you're trying to strike a bargain with God. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me 
and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I... Now, he's just adding to this list. So that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And it's like, whoopee. What are we really bringing to God? I mean, what do we really have to offer? The only way that man is able to approach a holy God is by the grace of God. It is by the sacrifice upon the cross. I can't bargain with God because I have nothing to bargain with. I come before the Lord empty-handed and broken-hearted. And, and if, God, if God at all has mercy upon me and has granted me anything and anything to serve, just even in the littlest, tiniest portion of his kingdom, just thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord, is to come before the Lord in obedience. Jacob, Jacob at this point in his life and for the majority of his life was a fool because he was offering nothing of any value whatsoever before the Lord. The third sacrifice of a fool is the excuse made for a lack of reverence, verses 6 through 7. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams, in many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. It's been said, he who is good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. This is a person who made this vow, but has every excuse in the world why they weren't able to do it. I kind of had this thing when I had my own business and I had employees it seemed like every time that more than one excuse was offered for why a job didn't get done, you knew that that wasn't the reason. They were trying to cover whatever it might have been in excuses. And we can do that. Well, you know what? I didn't feel good and I had to work late and whatever it might be. This is something that we're offering to God. As we're offering to God, I have to evaluate that vow or that offering I'm making to God and make sure that I have the time to be able to give it that I have the resources to produce it. And again, it's not that God needs those things. It's an expression of my heart before the Lord. And to give an excuse is just an excuse. And just think of how many excuses there really are out there. Now, there could be reasons and situations and circumstances that we can't fulfill, and God would understand that. There's no doubt about it. But nonetheless, as far as the ability that God's blessed me with, I need to give him what I have vowed to him. Psalm 66, verses 13 through 14. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. And then he, he's looking at all of this that is going on in the house of God, and he comes to this conclusion. And it's very simple here. But fear God. That's his answer to everything. Have a fear of God. Not be afraid of God. When you're afraid of something, you'll hide from him. That's what... Adam, when he first sinned, he was afraid of God and he went hiding. Not afraid of God, but have a fear of God. Understanding that God is seated upon the throne, that he's absolute holiness, that he loves me, he provides for me, and he cares for me. And because of all that and so much more, that I would have a fear of the Lord, a respect for God and who God is and what God has done, that I would offer to the Lord that which I am truly able to deliver upon. And as we're faithful in that, I'm going to have a stronger relationship with God. As we're faithful in that collectively, we're going to have a stronger church. And we're going to be able, well, we're going to see God move in amazing ways. Because you notice here in verse 6, it says, last part, why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? And what he's saying there is, 
God's not going to bless the things that you do. If you're going to act the part of the fool, then God is not going to bless what you do. But if you're faithful in what God has given you to do and what you vowed to God to do, then he's going to open the heavens before you. Father, once again, we just thank you for your graciousness. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy and how you care for us. And Father, I do pray that we would be a people that make vows to our God. But Lord, I pray that we would keep them quiet, keep them to ourselves, that this would be something between us and you. I pray, Father, that the vows that we make would be thought through, that we'd be prayed for, and, Father, be offered to you as a holy offering based upon, Father, the things that you consider to be holy, that we would not bargain thinking that we'll give a vow and get something in return, but these would just simply be holy offerings unto our holy God. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. I pray for those who have come out tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would go before them. I pray, Father, that you would make our way straight. I pray, Father, as we're finishing this past week, we thank you for the Bible studies, the fellowship. I thank you for the high schoolers and junior hires, Lord, the ministry to them at camp this weekend, and thank you for bringing them home safely. But, Father, as we finish a week, we also look forward to the coming week. I pray for the small groups and the studies and, Father, just the lives that we've been called to enter in and to have influence in, that you would enable us and that you would bless us in that as well. So, Lord, we just give you all the glory. We thank you, Father, for your goodness, and we just pray that we would live lives that would be honorable before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you all stand, please? Again, 